0: Lori, welcome to, um, to Element Three Church, and on this amazing Memorial Day weekend that is full of sunshine and barbecues, I'm sure for everyone. Um, yeah, I know we can't get enough of the weather jokes because all of us are just in disbelief that the, the you know that the, the holiday weekend, which is real, which is also the kickoff of summer, is starting this way. Although I think we all know the kickoff of summer was like somewhere around the middle of March when the temperature jumped to 150 degrees. But traditionally this would be the kickoff of summer for other people around the country. So um, yeah, not for us so much. So yeah, I, like I said, my name is Lori and I am very happy to be here. And by that I mean, I'm very happy to be standing right here. <laughs> I know. Thank you. That is actually not, has nothing to do with me. I am giving a huge shout out to the army of people who have moved heaven and earth for me to be able to stand up here, to navigate the stairs, to, to think through all of the logistic things with me to make this possible. I, I have to give just a heartfelt thank you to John Stott who built a handrail for me in like 24 hours. Um, so I, it was on the other side of some sorrowful tears when I figured that it, when I realized on Friday that it was going to be very challenging for me to get up here. And so he worked hard like he always does to make this a little bit easier. So I'm very grateful, um, that adds to my joy about being here. So thank you for joining us and for, um, and for choosing to be here today. So, I want to, but as we kick off, I want to remind you where we are and where what what we started last week. in addition to it being child dedications, which how many of you were participated in that or or were here for that, is a great celebration of our community. And just I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention this at this moment. When you see child dedications coming up, know that you are supposed to be here, whether you have child, small children or not. And by supposed to, what I mean is, It's our job to come and celebrate with families who are making that step in their their children's lives. It is not a a day to check out. It is for all of us to come together as one family. It is an important day. It was a great day last week. And in addition to that, Pastor Eric also kicked off our new series, Walking Through the Book of 1 John. Um, And it's going to take us through the summer to get through it because you will find out, as evidenced last week and this it's going to be a slow pace because there is a lot to get through, a lot to it. So I want to give you another, oh, I'm sorry, yeah, the series name is This Is How We Know. And Pastor Eric mentioned last week the reason that that was, is the title is John uses that language throughout the book. Um, he's speaking very clearly. This is how we know he is referring to the fact that he has, he has this personal knowledge of what he is saying. He has a firsthand account. We're going to jump into that in a few minutes. But before we go there, I want to remind you, the author is John. Um, it is the same author of the Gospel of John. Many scholars got together, sat around a conference room table, had to drink their coffee and put their heads together and said, yeah, it has to be the same author for 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John as was John because the language is so similar. And we're going to see that as we go through this this series. And one of the ways that it's very similar is John likes to use very contrasting language, and we're going to dig into that today and throughout this series. So, um, the other reason that I make I, I know who the author of this letter is is because um, this is I need you to know some things about him, because that sets up the context for what he's writing to us about. So. He was very close to Jesus. Like I said, he walked and traveled with Jesus. He, w- he had a very special relationship with Jesus. So the things that he's writing are from a place of personal experience. He is not talking like uh, something this he has heard from, from through the telephone game. So um, it's important for you to know that he was close to Jesus also. So close that Pastor Eric mentioned this last week as well, that when Jesus was on the cross... John is who he spoke directly to and asked him to care for Jesus' own mother. This is a special relationship that they had. Like I said, they traveled together. They spent most of Jesus' ministry years together. The reason that that's important is because, again, this gives authority to the language that John is using when he is teaching us through this letter. Now, we're going to, the scripture that Melanie read for us is out of 1 John. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn there. If you want to use an E3 Bible, they are they are on the tables throughout the room. I would encourage you to get one. If you don't have a Bible to take home, please take one of those home. Um, we are, the verse. The verses that Melanie read are actually out of the Common English Bible. That's a slightly different translation, but certainly you'll be able to follow along. John, I want to talk about who John is writing this letter to. We've talked about a little bit about who John is and the authority that where he's coming from in writing the letter. But I want to talk about who he's writing to. Now, Eric, Pastor Eric talked to us last week a little bit about this is not, this is a community of believers near Ephesus. It is not a single church as we would look at like this building as a church. It's more likely that it's a group of house churches that have come together. They're a part of this community and they are they are doing church together. This is how churches started then and it's largely how churches start now. So it's very similar. So what's happened is John is has heard back from this community. Now these are people that he has previously taught. He has a personal relationship with them and he has taught the teachings of Jesus to these people. So he... Excuse me. Sorry. I I know that hurt your ears. Um, He he has heard back rumblings that there have been some false teachings happening throughout this community. Now, he has left them and he has trusted them to continue to listen and, and believe the things that they have been taught. But he's hearing, and we know this because we look at his language in his letter, that other things are being taught. Now, I want you to consider as we're looking at this letter that we are hearing one side of the conversation, right? We're hearing John's reply to this community, but he, that means that he has heard specifically some of the things that he is countering. That means that he has heard specifically some things that were not lining up, and that's the place that he's coming from, and he recognizes that it has caused some division and some separation in these communities. It's caused confusion, at the very least. And it's a result of some of the people taking the truth that they have heard and twisting it ever so slightly, but in hugely significant ways. This has caused a huge disruption, as you could imagine. If you were to hear contradiction from my teaching to in comparison to Pastor Eric's teaching last week, you might... You might have some confusion. You might have some feelings about that too, right? The reason that I share that with you is I want you to understand that this, is the, this, is, this explains the sense of urgency that John is writing this through. This explains, in some cases, the harshness of the language in the letter that we're going to talk about. He's talking to them, and he even refers to them throughout this book as his children, just like he did even in the Gospel of John, as his children. He, is, he has a special relationship with them, and he is speaking to them like a parent who recognizes that his children are in danger, because that's exactly what's going on. Now, for any of you who are parents in the room, maybe you can understand what I'm going to say. And even if you aren't, you probably have seen a, a situation play out where a parent has watched a child test some boundaries and go just too far with, with they're now in danger. And this happened, this played out in my life. It's played out in my life multiple times. We, between Carl and I, we have four children. It has happened a lot. But the, one that the instance, instance that I want to tell you about this morning is, is uh, Jackson, who um, serves here in this community. He's our 16-year-old son. And when he was about two... We were on a family vacation to a place that we love to go, Cape San Blas. I, 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 I hesitate to tell people about it because I still feel like it's undiscovered and like my own little private island, but it's not. But um, it is just a, a gorgeous stretch of beaches. And we've been going there for years and, and went for years after this too. We stayed in a condo and we were walking to the beach. And to get to the beach, you have to go past this community pool where we also spent some of our time. Now, Jackson, like I said, he's around two years old at this point, and he has gotten ahead of my husband, Carl, who probably, as the cabana boy, was carrying all of the stuff to get us to the beach, right? And so Jackson has decided that he wants freedom, and he takes off running, you guessed it, for the deep end of the pool. Now, I'm going to pause right here and say, if you're a parent, what is your response in this moment? Is it for you to go, now, Jackson... Now, let's consider for a moment the choices that you might be making. Perhaps let's reconsider. Let's talk about the potential danger. Let's, let's really just embrace this moment and think this through. Is that the response? No. No. No, it was the group of all of us coming together, screaming his name and screaming things like stop. Now, I'm going to tell you because I forgot to tell the nine o'clock gathering that clearly he was saved. This is how that played out. My husband, who apparently in that moment became a superhero, leapt from however many feet away he was, to the edge of the deep end as Jackson is going under and grabs the boy by his swim shirt and brings him out of the water. I mean, it happened in a split second, but, but it was terrifying for everyone involved except for Jackson. <laughs> so all of us are screaming because he was in danger. There was something at stake. His life was at stake. He didn't know how to swim and he didn't have his swimmies on. He wasn't supposed to be in the deep end of the pool. He wasn't supposed to be in the pool at all. He was in danger. It was real danger. This is the, the tone of John's language. He is, that's why he's speaking so harshly in some places, because he knows these people. He cares very deeply about them. He knows what he has taught them and the family that they are a part of, Christ's family, and he has heard that they are in danger because they have started to believe false teachings. Now, I don't know if that hits home for anybody here, but it, that, hap- that can happen very easily. We can all, if we think about it, think about a, a thing that we know to be true that we adjust ever so slightly to make it a little more comfortable. Now, I'm going to tell you, That's where we're going today. As hard as that may be and as uncomfortable as that may be, that's where we're going today because that's where, just in the first 10 verses of this book, that's where John goes. Again, it's about his urgency. Um, It's about his care for them. He knows that some of them are turning away from the things that they knew to be true, and he might feel a little betrayed. He, at the very least, has to feel hurt and Probably a little ticked, I would think, because he's spent a lot of time with these people, and he's invested a lot in them, telling them the truth. Not the truth, not some version of the truth, the truth of the firsthand account of Jesus' teachings. This is significant. So we're going to talk for a minute about who the audience is. It is this community of believers, but there are really two audiences here. I'm going to go ahead and sit if that's okay with you guys. There are what I'm calling the dissenters and then the rest of of the children. They're all special to John, but the the dissenters are the opponents, are the ones that have been twisting some of the things that they know to be true. Now, we don't know exactly who they are. They aren't named specifically. They aren't, the you know, the house church leader of this church and this. He, does, he doesn't go into that detail because, frankly, it's, it sounds like it's a widespread problem. He doesn't go into it specifically, but he knows what the dissension is about. Like I said, we're hearing John's message back to them based on what he's heard. So these are, now here's the real danger, if you want to think about the danger. It is not just that these, this group of people have started believing and twisting things to their benefit. They are also trying to get others to follow them. Now, now everyone's vulnerable. It wasn't that they were, here's the other tricky thing, it wasn't that they were in total disbelief or, cre- or committing outrageous, egregious sins. It's that they were just changing things ever so slightly and they were claiming to be following the Spirit as they were doing this. They were, they were claiming that they were following, that they had the Spirit in them and that now some things that used to be wrong were no longer wrong. Do you see the danger there? you see how that it would be easy to fall prey to that? <clears throat> now here's another huge part of that. If they are twisting the truth, and I would say watering down the truth, then how significant is Jesus' death on the cross at that point to them? It's less than. It's less significant than it was, than it should have been, and than it is. Because if they were claiming that these things were not sin, and they were even in the verses that Melanie read, and he's even speaking to them as they're saying, we have no sin, then why would they need a Savior? This is where they were coming from. They were claiming that their walk with Christ was so intimate that they they, they were unstained, not forgiven that they had not sinned. That's a difference. It's a huge difference. This is a much bigger problem. They agreed with the idea of Christ, that that Christ was real, but they didn't necessarily believe that he came in flesh and blood and walked this earth. And furthermore, they didn't necessarily believe any longer that Jesus, as the man, was the incarnation of God. Now, the contrast of that are the rest of John's children, the people that, that he calls his children, because of his relationship with them. He cared very deeply about them. And like I said, he's, throughout the letter, he refers to them as his children. He wants to protect these people from these things that they're hearing. Because he knows how vulnerable they are. He understands if any of his children were able to hear the truth from him originally. And twist it that all of them are vulnerable. Everyone is vulnerable to this. So his first response when he hears about this is to remind all of them, you have to go back to the truth. You have to go back to the basics of what I first taught you. And more importantly, what I taught you on behalf of my firsthand account of walking with Jesus. He has to reassure them in their faith and counter these false teachings. He wants them to be able to understand and to discern the difference between what's truth and what's not. Now, I'm going to pause here and say, how challenging is that for us in the in the culture that we live in? Is it do we li- do we like to live our lives in black and white? Most of us don't. So as we're going to we're going to talk about. Um, this more contrast language that John uses about light versus dark. Now in the letter, in in the verses that Melanie read to us, it talks a lot about God as light. God is light and there is no darkness in him at all. It says in verse five, there he is, he is light and there is no darkness. God is light. This isn't coming out of left field. John is aware of Through history, and we read about in the Old Testament, all the places where God is represented through light. He appears to Moses in Exodus as fire, that, a light. He is light that lights the path for the Israelites to travel through the desert. God's work among his people is often described as light, lighting the way, lighting the path, um, clearing the way. And he tells us that we cannot walk in the darkness and be in true fellowship with God. So what does walking in light look like? Well, we believe that what that means is it's a, it's a continuous thing. It's a continual thing. It's, a, it's meant to harmonize every part of our life. It's meant for us to be able to discern the difference between truth and false teaching, truth and lies. Now, make no mistake, none of us, including and especially me, does that perfectly. No one, no one does. But that path, that light is there for us. And that is the way that we are supposed to measure what the, what is, um, how we can define what sin is. And that's what we're talking about is sin. The verses, we're going to move into verses 7 through 10. Um, this, this teaching is not just about bad teaching. This is about false teaching. These dissenters have started to, to make sin less than, the, and, and a broader base. They have started operating not in light versus dark, but in shades of gray, somewhere in the middle. I think we all know that's what society would want us to do, even still, today. This is... This is this is not a new problem, but it is still, it's a current problem. Sin, in case you don't know, is simply this. Sin is missing the mark. If you envision that Christ is at the center of a bullseye, this is our target. This is, God is in the center of the bullseye. Anything that doesn't hit the very bullseye is sin. It doesn't matter how far outside the lines it is. We like to say here at E3 that everything that falls short of the glory of God is sin. I say we like to say it. We don't like to feel it, but we like to say it. And that doesn't mean that we don't sin. Everyone does. We know that. Everyone does. We know also that we are redeemed people. We are forgiven people, but we are living in a fallen world, and our struggle with sin is real. Now, like I said, the caution is how do we define what sin is? It has to be measured through the lens of God as light, through what God says is sin, what God says is truth, and what isn't. Sin is real, and just like we talked about with the dissenters, if sin wasn't, then we wouldn't need a real savior. There'd be no reason Sin requires God's forgiveness, and the death of Jesus, and the crucifixion provides that for us. I don't think anyone can look at the work of the cross and say, I don't need that. I don't need that. That's not for, he's not up there because of me. I, I haven't personally met anybody who feels that way or has said that to me, but clearly this was an issue that John was confronting And the scripture says, if you say that you don't have any sin, then you're calling God a liar. Because God knows that everyone sins. Here's a paradox that is difficult for people to wrap their head around, but is still nonetheless true. The people who acknowledge they are not fit to be with God are the people who can be with God. And people who claim they have no sin are the people who are the farthest from God in verse 9 it says but if we confess our sins he is faithful and just to forgive us so what are we supposed to do with our sin we're to confess now we're we're not uh, we have some liturgy here at, at e3 but we do we're not a high liturgical church we don't have frequent confession services because frankly we believe it's not a For us, it is not a come to one service and do this thing and be done. This is an ongoing conversation between you and God because your sin is an ongoing thing, whatever the sin is, whatever the multiple sins are. So you need more than just an occasional confession time. But like I said, the scripture says, but if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us. Some have asked, why do we need to confess and be forgiven again after after we've received salvation? I want to make this clear. What's at stake here is not your relationship with God, it is your fellowship with God. Those are two different things. Hear me when I say this. Your relationship with God, if you have received his forgiveness, is secure. Your fellowship with God is a two-way street. He is always available. The thing that stands in the way of that is our sin. That's the reason he sent his son to begin with, because there was a separation between God and his children, and it was because of sin. And he sent his son to die on the cross so that that barrier doesn't exist anymore. So anytime that we entertain sin in our lives, we let that barrier come into not our relationship with him, but our fellowship with him. So what does confession look like if you've not experienced it? Confession is simply agreeing with God. It's agreeing that there is this thing that's wrong, and I know this because I've measured it by the truth of God's word and the light that has been shown on it. And it is either black or white. It is not gray. It is sin or it is not. It is not measured in degrees. I know this is harsh language because it's that important. It's agreeing and then acknowledging it to God. And here's the other hard part. Then it's humbly asking for forgiveness. Now that's one of the hard parts. The next one is just as hard. It is committing to not doing it again. I used to tell my children when I was teaching them to say I'm sorry for something that they did, that I had to explain to them. It's not just asking for forgiveness for what you've done. When you say you're sorry, it means you are going to not do that again. As as much as you are in control of it, you will not do that thing again. That's what I'm sorry means when I was teaching my children. That's part of confession. The commitment. Don't miss that piece. It doesn't mean that you won't be forgiven again if you do stumble. It means that you are going to try and you are going to invite God into that and ask him to help you to battle that sin and to have it gone from your life. We don't confess to gain God's acceptance. He's already accept us, accepted us, but it's to remove that barrier. Just as darkness can't exist in the presence of light, sin can't exist in the presence of a holy God. It can't. That's the separation. It's difficult, I know, for us to acknowledge our faults and our, our brokenness because it's weakness we live in a world that wants to tell us weakness is bad and we, are, we need to be strong. Humility looks like shining a light on the weakness and saying, this is, this is the thing I'm struggling with. This is who I am. It's not who I will be. It's not who I want to be. But it is who I am right now. Confession, confession frees us to enjoy a fellowship with God. We can't, like the people that John is writing to, we cannot deny our sinful nature. Everyone sins. We can't think we're above it. That's when we'll stumble, the hardest and the farthest. That's what happened to the dissenters. And we can't minimize the consequences of it either because it is about our fellowship with God. We have to resist it, but we have to know that when we stumble, There's still a way out. So we're going to spend the next couple of minutes reflecting on a couple of hard questions. It's going to take some humility. It's going to take some openness of your hearts and your minds. It might be going to a place that you didn't intend to go or don't like to go. But I want you to take these questions and, and ponder them over the next few minutes. Is there an area of your life that you have been trying to keep in the dark? This is how we identify sin. Is it in hiding? Is it in secret? It, does, it, does it tick a little bit away at, at, in the back of your mind? Is it reflected in some of your relationships? Bring it into the light. And see what God says about it. That's a huge, huge thing. That's a huge step. What will it take after you identify that thing or those things? What will it take for you to confess it? To agree with God that it's sin. Just that first step. What will it take for you to confess it? Now I say this not lightly because this isn't a light thing. You don't have to go on this journey alone. And it doesn't have to only be between you and God. You can invite other trusted members of your community into this, your growth groups, certainly your pastors, other leaders in this community. These are hard things because they're serious things. They're important things. Children, Children's lives are at stake, and we are the children. Children's fellowship with God is at stake, and we... We are the children. As the band does this next song, I I want to, these are hard questions and I don't want to leave you just there. I want you to go that deep, but I don't want you to just only think about your grossness and your sin. The contrast to that is God's love for you. That's huge, and it's important for you to remember that. You are not identified by the sin that you commit, any of it. You are identified as a child of God. That's who he says you are. And that is important for you to remember as you go on hard journeys like this. It's not okay for you to just stay in the muck and the mire. It's not. That's not what God wants for you. His love, like this song says, is a reckless love for you. There is no length that he will not go to for you, for you, for you, for all of us. It's personal. So as you think about those questions over the next couple minutes, make sure that you couple that with God's mighty love for you. If this is a hard place for you during this song, take the space you need to sit. If you want to stand, stand. This is your time. This is your moment. This is your time to worship God because of his great love and the gift that there doesn't have to be any barrier between you and him. Amen.